0: You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, In today's lecture, we're going to talk about Isaiah chapter 26. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's go ahead and get started. Starting at verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith May enter in. Now, when we use this uh, terminology and language of a gate, of a city, as we talked about before, remember we said that the city could be seen as the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, or and connected to Christ, who is the refuge, the citadel, the place where we enter into to take refuge and hide from any kind of fighting or war from the devil. But in this image, you have a city with a wall and a gate for protection. Whether Christ is the city or Christ is in the city, it's the same thing. For it is Christ's presence in the midst of his people that provides for us safety and security. So the language of walls and the language of gates, they include and they also exclude. There are those who are on the outside and there are those who are on the inside. Now in Psalm one hundred and eighteen we learn about the work of Christ, in which he uses this same kind of an imagery, in which he speaks and he says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Now this is Christ, of course, in his ascension, the one who comes back to the throne of the Father the one who was from heaven descended to earth and now ascends back to his glory with the Father. And so the gates are open, the gates of righteousness, and he opens them. So therefore, we have this image of the gates that the righteous nation keeps faith, that the gates of righteousness are open. Of course, the righteous are those who believe, those who are righteous by faith. When the early church father, Cyril of Alexandria, was commenting on this passage in Isaiah, he notes that the Holy Spirit bids the apostles and evangelists to open the gates to the city. And how do they open the gates? By the proclamation of their word. Entrance is given through faith, faith in Christ. For Cyril will note that we are justified through faith. Now, of course, what Cyril does is he contrasts this New Testament worship with the Old Testament worship, in which in the Old, it was a type and a shadow of the worship of the reality. The Old Testament worship forms were given temporarily for the people of God, Israel. Of course, Cyril will note that those who were outside the people of God, those who were the goyim, the Gentiles, they had a different form of worship not given in the Old Testament Scriptures. Instead, they worshipped creation itself, fallen creation, rather than the Creator. And they attached their passions of the flesh to these things rather than the one who created all things. And as Cyril notes, both Jew and Gentile, in the worship of the New Testament, now have the reality of Christ. The one who comes that we may enter in. The one who gives us his righteousness by faith. So that true worship is faith in Christ who alone makes us righteous and gains access for us to the Father. And now he enters in to the gates of righteousness and with him brings his people of both Jews and Greeks who are righteous through faith. Now, back to Isaiah 26, starting at verse 3. Isaiah writes, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever, for Yah, Yahweh is an everlasting rock. Now, in this passage, of course, what we see is the person and work of Christ, who is Yahweh. He is the one who brings peace with God. He's the one who gives us this peace, as we have in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Of course, that's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Christ is the one who gives to us this perfect peace. And in him, in this refuge, we now have peace with God. Now, also in this passage, we note that Yahweh is an everlasting rock. This is a reoccurring theme throughout Isaiah about Yahweh being a rock. But in particular, we note that it is the Christ who is a rock. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 8 that he, talking about the promised Messiah, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, that's in Isaiah chapter 8. Now, later on in Isaiah chapter 17, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Later on in Isaiah chapter 30, You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the rock of Israel. Or later on in chapter 44, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. You see, Yahweh alone is the everlasting rock. And we continue with Isaiah chapter 26 at verse 5. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. For the foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Now, Luther, when he's talking about this passage right here, he notes this as a description of the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's the city, this lofty city. That's earthly Jerusalem that has raised itself in exaltation, but God comes and makes it low, low to the ground very low, so that it is God's action here. In other words, the lofty city are those who are in the dominion of darkness who are trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. Remember, as we've been talking about in these last few chapters, the contrast between the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and any earthly city, specifically earthly Jerusalem or Babylon Or Sodom, Gomorrah, Nineveh, and of course, earthly Jerusalem, any of these cities that are trying to prevent God's city from coming. So that this is a word to the remnant, a word of comfort, that Christ is the shelter of God. He's the one that provides a refuge in the midst of this destruction. The overthrowing of these earthly cities takes place when the city of God comes. And thus Isaiah will continue in the next verse. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Yahweh, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Now again, as we've talked before, the righteous. This is the remnant. These are the believers. Those who trust in the promise of Emmanuel. And this is the path that God makes for the righteous. The path of God's judgments, all right, again, are these judgments that God brings about. Now, judgment in and of itself, God being judge in and of itself, is not something that is negative. To bring a judgment is to bring justice. So, judgments are righteousness, that God will bring a righteous judgment. And this happens through the words of Moses and the prophets, as they lay out this path of righteousness, speaking of Christ, who is our righteousness, in shadows and in type. And therefore, we are encouraged throughout the writings of Moses and the prophets to wait for Yahweh's salvation. And once again, here we say, we wait for you. That is, we trust in your promise. Just like we were taught at the end of Genesis in chapter 49. I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. These were the words that uh, Jacob gives to us as he continues to point us to the promise of the Messiah. Now, when we walk, we walk in the light, waiting for the Lord. This is the path of righteousness. This is the way of the righteous. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. At one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the way of life is Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he gives to us the gift of the Holy Spirit that we begin to walk in him. When we talk about waiting for Yahweh, we're waiting. We are anticipating, we're hoping, we are trusting in his promises that he will act in his time. And of course, his promises are tied to his name, the name of Yahweh, a name that is to be remembered as we remember the promise that he gives. And this is the desire of our soul, that Yahweh himself is the one who saves. Yahweh took the people out of bondage in Egypt And Yahweh will take his people out of bondage to sin in the incarnation. So as Isaiah says that we wait for you, your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. He continues into the next verse and cries out and says, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. That's verse 9. When the early church father Cyril of Alexandria was commenting on this passage in particular, he noted that the night is the time before the incarnation. So that what he sees here is this, the darkness, the dusk the time of night when you're waiting for the sun of Righteousness to arise, so that in the night, in the time of waiting and anticipating for God's salvation, we look for the dawn, the day in which the sun, S-U-N, of Righteousness rises up. He's the day star rising in our heart. And now we are in light, for the light of the world has come, and He has brought us into His light. And as we walk in his light, his blood covers our sin. Now Paul, when he comments on this passage and understanding in Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And he's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Therefore, when, when Isaiah is talking about yearning for the salvation of God in the nighttime, this is this waiting and anticipating, knowing that the night is temporary, that the night will soon come to an end. And then on that Sunday morning, the resurrection of Christ, when life once again shows forth from the tomb, when light now shines in the midst of the darkness, we now see the glory of God in the face Of Jesus Christ. This was the desire of the soul of Isaiah. And his desire is that the soul would be turned heavenward. Well, in a similar way, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3 If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so in tandem with Isaiah, Paul is writing about the place where we're to set our eyes, that we seek the Lord, we seek his salvation, we look to the one who is the visible image of the invisible God, the one who has come from above down to us below and now has ascended back to the right hand of the Father to bring us with him. And in this time, where we wait and anticipate the Son of God returning in the second coming, we learn righteousness. So that Jesus teaches us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added. So that we set our eyes on Jesus, who is our righteousness. We learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness and he continues to feed us and impute his righteousness to us. Now Isaiah continues at verse 10 of chapter 26, saying, If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of Yahweh. When Isaiah is commenting and meditating and teaching and revealing this to us, He's teaching us about the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Again, the righteous are those who are righteous through faith in Christ, the promise of Emmanuel. The wicked are those who have no faith, who are unrepentant unbelievers. That's the contrast. So the heart of the wicked must be changed. They must learn righteousness from Christ. And in John's Gospel, when he talks and tells us about what Christ came to do and even his own would not receive him, Jesus speaks in chapter 8 of John, saying, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, if favor is shown to the wicked, the wicked does not learn righteousness, For the wicked, being unrepentant and unbelieving, has no hunger or thirst for righteousness. Instead, he desires to be in this corrupted state in the darkness and not seeing the majesty of God. But our righteousness, Jesus Christ, in the Incarnation, he comes to seek and to save the lost. He comes into the darkness in order to show us the light. For instance, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from the Father. He has seen the Father. So Jesus is teaching us that he has come to teach us, to lead us into his light to enlighten us. And, of course, he also teaches that he will pour out the Holy Spirit so that our eyes would be opened and our ears would hear his word. And then our wicked hearts would be converted and changed. The passage that Jesus is referring to, of course, is seen later on in Isaiah chapter 54, when Isaiah proclaims that all your children shall be taught by Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. So Isaiah is assuring the remnant that Yahweh himself will come and he will teach. And this is what he does in the incarnation, that they will all be taught by God himself in order that Yahweh will appear so that they may see the majesty of Yahweh in Christ. And that's what Jesus was saying in chapter six of John's gospel. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, the wicked cannot see God and they do not desire to see God. But it is in the Incarnation in which God comes to show us his will and his desire. He desires that we would see God and that we would hear his voice. And in this, that we would be converted. For God has no desire in the death of the sinner, but that the sinner would be changed and have life. Back to Isaiah 26, picking up at verse 11. Isaiah writes, O Yahweh, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Now here he is threatening those who do not learn righteousness. But at the same time, these are words of encouragement for the remnant, those who are righteous through faith. The unbelievers do not have eyes to see, and they don't want to see. And so Jesus says in John chapter 9, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Of course, this contrast that you have in Isaiah and John is that the religious leaders of Israel claim that they can see. They are the ones who claim to be the seers, that is, seers of visions. But yet they are not seeing the vision that God himself gives them to see. They are seeing a different vision, one from the imagination of their heart. And so they think that they see, but in fact they are blind. But Jesus comes so that everything can be made known, that those who are leading people astray with a false vision, these are the blind leading the blind. But Jesus is the light that comes into the world. He's the one who comes to open up eyes to see. And in that, then these rulers will see that they are mistaken. Now, specifically, he says that your hand is lifted up. Now, this hand, of course, is incarnational language. It's the only begotten Son. And as Cyril of Alexandria will say, that the purpose of the incarnation is to justify people on earth by faith, so that they would have eyes to see the righteousness of God. But yet, those who do not see, those who refuse to see, those who hate the light but love the darkness, they will come under judgment. And they will see in the end, and they will be ashamed. As Paul tells us that in the end, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Yahweh to the glory of the Father. And in the days of Jesus, this becomes a, in the days of Jesus, we get a glimpse of this at the resurrection. You see, the religious leaders who claimed to be those who could see the truth were the ones who did not see truth that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, who came to save and give life. Instead, they put Jesus to death for blasphemy. They try to remove the author of life from his own creation. But it's in the resurrection in which now they see that their verdict was incorrect, that the vindication of God comes upon them, in that this Jesus, who was condemned to die for blasphemy, has been absolved and risen. And furthermore, later on in AD 70, when the city of Jerusalem is leveled by the Romans in judgment, fire reducing the, the whole city to ashes, this earthly city coming to an end, this is something that the religious leaders of that day would see and be ashamed of. Now Back to Isaiah 26, uh, picking up at verse 12. O Yahweh, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Yahweh, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring in remembrance. This is verses 12 and 13. Peace comes from God. He is the God of peace. Christ is our peace. He's our peace. God of peace, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Also in Romans chapter 5, as we are justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have the comfort for the godly believers, the righteous remnant who trust in the promise, that God himself will ordain peace for us, that God's work is done for our benefit. And in this, we remember the promise and remember the name, remembering his actions, who he is and what he says he will do and what he completes in the incarnation. In the days of Isaiah, the people are taught to wait for God's salvation, to wait for the Messiah, the Anointed One, who would redeem them and release them from oppression, both theologically and physically. That they have had many different lords lording it over them, rulers ruling over them, both tyrants in the physical world in civil society, and also false teachers in the theological and spiritual realm. But they have led the people astray, but God's name is what brings them back to the reality of God's promise as they remember Him. Now, as we transition into the next verse, we want to make a clear distinction between the us and them. Now, notice that when the writer The prophet Isaiah is speaking of us, that God will ordain peace for us. He's including himself in that mix, that he is part of the us, those who hear the promise and those who trust in it. Now, as we shift over to verse 14, there's a contrast between the us, the remnant who hear the promise and believe, and they, them, those ones who do not. So in verse 14, he says, they are dead, they will not live, they are shades, they will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. So I want you to note this this contrast between the us and we versus the they and them. Those ones who do not listen, who refuse to hear the promise, resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, they are dead. They are dead in their trespasses. And as Jesus said in John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They are spiritually dead. That's the they, the unrepentant unbelievers. And the dead will not live. But through the prophet Ezekiel, Yahweh says in chapter 18 of his book, Behold, all souls are mine, the souls of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul who sins shall die. These are those who do not listen. They do not have life because they do not have God's word. They are dead and they will not Live. They are shades and they will not arise. Their lot is destruction and death. The remembrance of them will be wiped out. Now, on the contrary, the other hand, the believers have the opposite. The believers are the us, the we. We have life and we shall live in Christ. For Christ has visited us with salvation. So when you hear the Word of God, look at these contrasts between these pronouns of an us and a them, of a we and a they, of God's people and not God's people. The difference between the sheep and the goats, the ones who hear the voice of the shepherd are the sheep who have life. The righteous remnant are the ones who sing, we have a strong city He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening, and may our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.